Welcome back to Chalkboard History, volume, I don't know, but this is the seven. second one we're filming today. Yeah, I think this is seven. Last Wednesday in March of 2023, it's a beautiful day outside, the trees are coming into bloom, no trees don't bloom, trees no. are about to leaf out, no. flowers are blooming, little baby birds are being born, and here Actually, we are. it's very cold outside, so I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, for God's sakes, you're from... Yes, it from is not it's cold. cold. What, it's, it was it was thirty two degrees this morning. Well, it's forty six. Okay, so thin sheet of ice covering up all my pollen. Hey, my God, just a couple weeks ago it was oh, I'm fried because you were in the sun. Now you're complaining about it being cold. My goodness I can't gracious, win. I can't win, so it's fine. So happy times. Here we are at Ripa Villa, and today, well, this morning we're going to talk about. The Battle of Spring Hill, which has been discussed and written about, um, I think, since probably the day after the Battle of Franklin, when everybody was like, what the hell happened? Yeah. How did this, how did we get away? Or how did they get away? And, and you know, it it is, I think, uh, was perhaps um, the greatest mystery of the Civil War. Um, shameless self-promotion and other promotion. Jamie Gillum's book, The Battle of Spring Hill, is a must-read. I met Jamie years ago. He certainly changed some of my thinking about Spring Hill. He and I don't come to all the same conclusions, but the book is solid, filled with maps, lots of really cool accounts. Uh, yours truly. Um, focused about a third of... The Spring Hill, as I called it, Spring Hill Affair. And is it true that if they order it online and they use the promo code DISPATCH, they get $2 shipping and you'll even sign the book for them? I might sign the book if our uh, gift shop coordinator manager extraordinaire Bill Clark is on his game. There we go. I can't speak about Jamie signing his book, but I can certainly take care of mine. And I, um, I chased this thing for years, mm -hmm. you know, I chased this thing when you were just a little professor, still running around, little professor, probably in your short pants somewhere in New Orleans. So let's talk about the Battle of Spring Hill. Yeah. G give us um, what's the conclusion? Let's start at the end. What the heck happened? Well, the conclusion is the Battle of Franklin. I think. I think it's a running fight from here to Franklin, from Columbia to Spring Hill to Franklin. Twenty-five Fun. hours to tragedy. There you go. Right there, right in the there. title. He yeah. put it on the cover for right. us to make it really easy. So, so what happened? What do you mean, what happened? Well, what's, I mean, what's the end? I mean, what happened? Well, the Confederate Army's objective was to block the Columbia Turnpike, and they didn't do it. And John Schofield carried out an incredibly daring escape, moved his entire army, I would argue, within 300 yards of much of the fighting portion of the Confederate right. Army. So what happened was, as I reminded someone the other day, Instead of just fixating on what the Confederates didn't do, mm -hmm. which is key, and we're going to get into that, what really happened is that the U.S. Army escaped. Yeah. And it was truly an, an incredible, um, it's an incredible effort, not just by Schofield, but by, by the rank-and-file yeah. guys to get out. I don't, I don't know if anybody sums it up probably better than John Schofield. He says, Hood went to sleep, and I stayed in the saddle all night overseeing the movements of my troops. Right. I mean, it gets right to the point there. So let's focus on a couple of... Um, Major points. We'll talk a little bit about the battle, but we're really going to talk about what 
is going on kind of after sundown and into the evening because that was what I worked to try and unravel, you know, because I was very interested 25 years ago when I was doing the initial research for my first book, you know, was there something to the rumors? So mm-hmm. the campaign itself is an effort by John Bell Hood, who's in command of the Army of Tennessee, which numbers about 28,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, to cause a lot of trouble, ultimately try and retake uh, the city of Nashville, which has been held by U.S. troops. Lots of people would say, oh, he shouldn't have done it. Well, I, it doesn't matter whether you think he should have or shouldn't yeah. have. I chose to focus on that he did and that this was an, a bold offensive move. Mm-hmm. Sherman has to ship troops back here to deal with Hood. So John Schofield. Oh, there he is. Yeah, he Look popped up. Look at There's Hood. There's Schofield. There's Jacob Cox. Optic. We've right. got the whole gang here. Right. All of a sudden, Granberry shows up. So anyways, Schofield comes back here. He's got about 30,000 men. And his job is to try and slow Hood down, You know, delay his movements so reinforcements mm-hmm. can be gathered together in Nashville. And then that sets the stage for... First, second, third, fourth, all the way from Pulaski to Columbia, and then here. So early on, I ran into people like old timies around here who were like, "Oh, there was never a battle," mm-hmm. and that was the first thing I had to come to grips with: is getting a true sense of the of the tactical mm-hmm. events. And even though. Someone asked me recently, well, you didn't think there was a battle. You called it the affair at Spring Hill. And I said, well, the subtitle seemed redundant if I said a study think, of the battle of Spring me. Hill. I was criticizing was you for it. <laughs> a study of the battle of Spring Hill and the battle of Franklin. Yeah. The, the battle of Spring Hill is its own thing. Mm-hmm. But then there's everything kind of after the fighting f- mm-hmm. flares out. First thing, and you address this. What in the heck, when Pat Claiborne's division stumbles into George Wagner's division, hundreds of casualties, probably three mm-hmm. or four hundred in a matter of a few minutes, uh, around four or four fifteen on November 29th, 1864. How did Pat Claiborne have no idea what he was walking into? And where has Nathan Bedford Forrest been all afternoon yeah. in 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 figuring out what was actually in front of him. What's going on? So when Hood swings the two corps, Cheatham and Stewart's corps, to the east of Columbia and begins this march behind Schofield, he also sends Forrest Cavalry, which preceded the infantry movement, and they're moving a little bit further out east. They arrive sometime around 11, also around the same time that the Federal Infantry Division under the command of George Wagner arrives here in Spring Hill. Forrest engages with Wagner and... This is always kind of fun to say. Wagner beats up Forrest like a red-headed stepchild. I mean, Lane's brigade throws back Forrest once, twice, three times. and then... Red-headed stepchild? Yeah, why not? You know, he Willie Nelson had a great stepchild. album, Red-Headed Stranger. Yeah. That's a great album. Yeah. I mean, I've listened to it. You're not going to trash Willie Nelson? No, like I'm you, never going to trash Willie like Nelson. Like you trashed Journey a couple of weeks ago. Journey is garbage music. Willie Nelson is good. All right, so Willie Nelson represents all that is fine and good with the So Forrest is a redheaded stepchild. Beaten up by Lane's brigade, beaten up by George Wagner. He goes south down to the Caldwell house, Marion and St. Clair Caldwell's home, makes his headquarters somewhere, either at the house, vicinity of the house, and then either doesn't bother to or waits to tell the Army Command, Hood, and the advance of Cheatham's Corps, Claiborne's division, what's ahead of him. 
And so then that afternoon, Forrest and I think is it Tyree Bell's brigade? Of uh, Buford's division. Uh, accompanies Claiborne's division into the attack. Uh, and Claiborne pushes sort of northwesterly towards the Columbia Pike. Uh, pause. What? So not just Forrest. Buford knows what they've been up to. Everything. Against. Tyree Bell. These are yeah. all... These are all experienced mm-hmm. soldiers. And, and I don't have an answer because I've never figured it out. Nathaniel Chairs Hughes actually wrote a great bio mm-hmm. on, on Bell. Um, never really been much on uh, Buford. I don't think there's a biography on Buford. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's been exhaustive work on Forrest. How did these guys not convey this information to the infantry? I have no idea. And I, I think some of it comes down to maybe command confusion. Some of it comes down to maybe Forrest is just not in his element. I mean, he's a raider at the end of the day. He's If you're going to pick a cavalryman, and you tell me I can only pick between two Confederate cavalrymen, and I have to choose one to gather intelligence, and my choices are Stuart or Forrest, I'm going to go with Stuart. So so check it out. So, so when Bell's brigade is attached to Claiborne's division, uh-huh. and the battle is about to commence... Forrest rides right, like yeah. almost next to Claiborne. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Now he may. And have I think said, the other part of it too is that we'll never know if Pat Claiborne was told something because exactly. he's killed right. the next he, day. So Forrest may have said something at that moment, and mm-hmm. we and we won't know. But it it does seem that's to me has always been like the first big domino mm-hmm. that falls because from there. Everything goes off the track. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hood, of course, is criticized by later people. Well, you know, he should have been at the front. I was like, well, Lee was never at the front. Yeah. And Grant, I mean... And you could like, actually argue that Hood is at the front because at the same time that Claiborne is attacking, he's accompanying William Bates' division towards the road. So, so he's with an active division, just not the one that's engaged at the moment. So here's a little bit of controversy, which I've never considered to be controversy. Mm-hmm. So Claiborne's division moves forward. He mm-hmm. runs into Wagner, all sorts of trouble. Who ordered Claiborne to advance? Cheatham. Right. So William Bates' division, <coughs> Bill Clark. <coughs> yeah. What did he call? I can hear him actually he, wooing from. He texted the me room. the other day and he said Old Grits. And I was like, who is Old Grits? And he said Bate. I was like, you are a fanboy. You know yeah. way more about this guy than pretty much most people. Anyway, so Bate is next up in line. Mm-hmm. Hood ordered Bate to move because Cheatham wasn't in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. And Cheatham was with Claiborne's division. And I actually think Jamie and I differed on this where somehow this is an issue. And I was like, I don't think this is an issue at all. Hood's intent was to have Cheatham's core, which is mm-hmm. three divisions, Brown, Claiborne, and Bate, mm-hmm. block the road south of town. At least Claiborne and Bate were mm-hmm. to move and then wheel mm-hmm. to the south. Mm-hmm. That's why both of them advanced in what is known as an in echelon formation, mm-hmm. which is not... You know, the, the right. brigades they're are sort of, they're staggered. I've never understood why this is any point of controversy. You know, Cheatham just wasn't right there. Cheatham and Hood had corresponded or had spoken to one another about what the objective was. So Hood saw Bate was ready to go and sent him on his way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a much to do about nothing. Mm-hmm. What, what happens, though, is Claiborne runs into trouble, which then diverts him from his objective because he pursues Wagner's mm-hmm. shattered one brigade because mm-hmm. Bradley gets caved in. So Claiborne's, some of Claiborne's men are in pursuit. Um, and then Bate begins to move in actually just 
right that, up here. That's really interesting. Just, just a little north of where we're it's, sitting. It's two brigades of Claver's division because it's Lowry and Govan. But Granberry, I mean, he makes a beeline straight towards the pike. So you can tell that his intent was always to move towards the road. Yes. Because he just keeps, Lowry and, and Govan are engaged and he just keeps going straight Do on towards the pike. Do we know who Granberry engaged? Because I was, I don't know that even in my book, I mm-hmm. was aware that there had been any casualties in Granbury's brigade. Mm-hmm. I recently found a newspaper article, out of, out of, like I think Houston, mm-hmm. and Granbury took a, a, a handful of casualties. So he ran mm-hmm. into somebody. Well, I mean, base division runs into the, what, the 26th Ohio out there, 120 or so men. Was that who Granbury ran into? It's very, I mean, if they're right there, I mean, Granbury's not that altogether that far away. Okay, so Claiborne's division is now broken into mm-hmm. two two brigades going this way, Granberry's going this way, Bates yeah. moving in north of Ripavilla. Yep. And then what happens? Fate intervenes is a good word. Or good way to put it. Domino it number two. two. Yeah. Uh, Cheatham sends a message to Bate and tells him to fall back and fix his right flank to Claiborne's left and support his attack. And this is where confusion sets in because Bate had just been told by the army commander, go block the road. Now he has a message from Benjamin Cheatham, who we could call the second in command, but his immediate superior that says, get away from the road. Ultimate confusion sets. And I forget who the two kind of officers that carry this exchange back and forth are, but Bate essentially met John Pertle is one of them. Pertle. He asks them, basically, are you sure? And Cheatham tells him to fall back or report under arrest. And Bate is within, and we tell the story at Ripavilla almost every day, his skirmishers mm-hmm. were within 100 yards of the road. He said his mm-hmm. main battle line was only 200 yards from the road. Yeah. And it was clear, meaning there was there was no enemy mm-hmm. opposition. They'd already driven back the 26th Ohio. Right, so. so the objective was right in front of him, yeah. and he was stopped. So that second domino falls. Mm-hmm. And then what happens next? Well, Bate pulls back away from the road, and it... It's dark by that point. I mean, sunset is right after about 4.30, 5 o'clock that afternoon. So it's pitch black by 5.15, 5.30. There's no way that you can see further south. There's no way that you can see what's in front of you. Sunsets at 4.37. It's night and new moon. I think what is called... There's a difference in something called astronomical twilight and nautical twilight. Nautical mm-hmm. twilight is what you could see on a flat ocean. Mm-hmm. Well, there are hills all around. Yeah. So you really have to look at astronomical twilight. And I think it's pitch dark by about 5.05. Mm-hmm. I mean pitch dark. Yeah. And nobody knows what Schofield is up to because Schofield had figured out hours earlier when he started to hear some of the gunfire to the north, mm-hmm. which was probably Forrest banging into Wagner. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even early in the morning, I mean, Hood starts his movement at 530 and then there's an infantry reconnaissance, I believe it's Sydney Post Brigade, yes. that sends back a message and tells right. him that there's infantry moving across the duck. And that's when Schofield says, we'll, move, we'll get the wagons, we'll get the guns, and we'll send Wagner's right. division and Kimball's division north. But he uh, sends, so Ruger's division is the first one that goes after Wagner gets here. And that's later in the afternoon, right. probably around 2 or 3 in the right. afternoon. So, he, so my point is, Schofield doesn't begin the complete withdrawal of the area mm-hmm. just north of Columbia until mid-afternoon, well, actually late afternoon. Yeah. So Ruger's division begins to arrive as Bate is pulling away from the road. And mm-hmm. then, so Ruger, T.J. Wood, mm-hmm. Nathan Kimball, Jacob Cox. Mm-hmm. They move all their divisions. Literally, the road's like right out here from mm-hmm. where we're sitting. I can see it right they there. They move right up the pike 
into Spring Hill. Mm -hmm. Ruger goes on to Thompson Station. Schofield knows the road is clear there. Schofield comes back. He gets the rest of the divisions pulled out. And then as we discussed in a video we did, goodness, well over a year ago, Wagner is the last out. And he mm -hmm. doesn't start pulling out till about 4 a.m. on November 30th. Mm -hmm. So, Confederate debacle, battle results in several hundred casualties. I mean, the, gosh, the 42nd Illinois. It's like and, 100 casualties just in the onset. Right. And the 64th and 65th Ohio just got, you know, tore up as they engaged Lowry's brigade of Claiborne's division. And Lowry lost over 200 mm -hmm. um, guys in the 33rd Alabama, 45th Alabama. And so then the U.S. Army slips away. And all night, you know, this is, this is going on. And there's no idea from really anyone in the Confederate high command that this is unfolding. Like, nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly we, we don't have the words of the generals who died the next day, but Hood, Cheatham, A.P. Stewart, Nathan Bedford Forrest, none of them seem to have any idea. But mm -hmm. what's actually happening out on the you know, the line of encampments because the Confederates are stretched probably a mile and a half kind of zigzagging mm -hmm. around the south, southeast, east side of Spring Hill. Mm -hmm. What's happening? I mean, they can hear something out there. They can hear footsteps. They can hear marching. And Horses? Then, mules? Wagons? Yeah. So that's actually a good point. The wagons and the cannons have always had my curiosity, and this is something that I've come to believe a bit more firmly in the last few months than I have in the last few years. I think the majority of the guns in the wagons had already arrived in Spring Hill. So anything that's moving with Schofield's column yep. is, you know, baggage wagons that might be attached to the particular division commander. But the majority of those guns and wagons have already arrived in town and have already been moved on at that point in time, too. Right. So the, the idea that they weren't hearing maybe so much guns and wagons being moved... They were certainly hearing men and horses moving too, mm -hmm. and then there's the the accounts, the, you know, the strange account here and there where uh, federal soldiers veered off the road and were captured, and Confederate soldiers stumbled onto the road and were captured. And we were talking right before about Dick Cap English, Captain Dick English, being saucy, yeah, interrogated by David Stanley. He's picked up by a Michigan regiment, I think, yep, the 23rd Michigan, to the, sent to the headquarters at uh, for the Fourth Corps and interrogated. And he's Talking about how confident he is that victory waits in the morning. That's what most of those guys in that field are thinking. Is that in the morning, it, it's over. Mm -hmm. They'll have boxed in Schofield. And so maybe they go to sleep that night with a little bit of confidence. And the other part of it is they're just exhausted, so they go to bed. And then, I think it's around 9 o'clock, that Hood and Cheatham have a meeting just before. All the accounts usually say something like, and Hood fell asleep. Well, he went to bed because he was tired. Um... That they have a meeting, and he asks where the position of his troops are if they're in position to block the road. And according to Hood, Cheatham responds in the affirmative. That's from Advance and Retreat. And the road is not blocked, but Cheatham is assured of it, so Hood is assured of it. So then A.P. Stewart shows up. He's a little far away from the road, doesn't know if he should get on it. Don't worry about it. Cheatham's on the road. Forrest shows up. Should I block the road to the north of town? Don't worry about it. It's blocked to the south of town. So then everybody goes to sleep. And then Johnson's division gets moved out sometime around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and they had already missed the bulk of the army, if not the entire thing. I think when I found the account of Joseph Cumming, um, who was a staff officer, 
you know, sometimes the, the simplest answer is the mm-hmm. one that's right in front of you. And, you know, conspiracy theories abound. You know, there are conspiracy theories about the Apollo missions, about 9-11, about Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. about the JFK assassination. And I won't say there were conspiracy theories about Spring Hill, but it was just about everything other than what the facts yeah. indicated. And Joseph Cummings said that he was one of these staff officers out on the line issuing orders for what Cheatham hoped would be this final advance with Brown and Claiborne and Bate. And Brown was ordered to advance. And Claiborne, when he heard Brown's guns would move, and then Bate would move when mm-hmm. he heard Claiborne's guns, and nobody ever moved. And, you know, it was everything from booze, drugs, Jesse Peters somehow was in bed with a couple of different Confederate officers. Don't forget the dancing, Paul. The dancing, the, 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 the carousing at Oaklawn, which is where Hood was headquartered. And I think Cumming, who wrote an account for his family and didn't have any axe to grind, Cumming simply said when he got back there, probably around or just after nightfall, he said that he found Cheatham remonstrating with Hood against a nighttime attack. And when I found that, I was like, and you know what? At that moment in time, that is the most understandable development. Cheatham has already run into trouble that he was not expecting. Mm-hmm. They don't exactly know what they're facing, but they have no information that the bulk of the federal armies even on the road. Right. And, and armies didn't move like this on a single road with all their stuff and all the troops. I mean, it was just unheard of. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think Cheatham is giving Hood the best intel that he had, I think that Hood is listening to his trusted or at least chief subordinate. Mm-hmm. A.P. Stewart is unable to find the road on the north side of town. And, 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 to, and to, to Cheatham's defense, someone that's been around the block and has been in some of the hard fights of the war. Right, like and, Chickamauga. And has dealt with night fighting at Chickamauga. Like, and Claiborne and yeah. Cheatham had certainly spoken and... You know, we now know when when Sam Hood found uh, Hood's papers in, of mm-hmm. all places, Philadelphia, probably a decade ago, one of the letters uh, contained in the papers was A.P. Stewart saying that he had heard, of course, now he heard this in hindsight, right. that Cheatham and Claiborne had, had spoken and had, you know, collectively agreed that moving around in the darkness any further wasn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, that supports everything that Cumming was saying mm-hmm. to Hood... Um, I'm sorry, that Cummings said he saw Cheatham saying to Hood. And, you know, I've had a lot of people, I mean, it happens all the time, how this happened, how this happened. And it's human error. Mm -hmm. I've never been able to conclude that it was anything other than human error. They went to sleep. They did not expect Schofield to pull off any sort of march like he did. who would? I mean, right, and who would? When your biographer... Your best biographer, and in his case, his only biographer, says that he lacked soldierly qualities. It doesn't exactly give you an overbounding sense of confidence in John Schofield. Mm-hmm. And then he pulls something like this off. And it, somebody made a point to me. You know, I, We were talking about Hood and Schofield's kind of their makeup, a little bit about each of them. And he said, do you think that by, that night, the 29th, it was almost like roles were reversed? Hood became a little bit more conservative, a little bit more hesitant to attack, and then all of a sudden Schofield comes rolling out of the box with this aggressive march, this really unprecedented march throughout the night. And the only thing I disagreed about was that I don't know that Hood ever pulled away so much as 
it was just done for the day. The action had concluded. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, there's no way that Schofield <clears throat> would come out of Columbia. No. And not with 10,000 men and all the armies artillery sitting right there, right in front of them. There's no way you could evacuate. Well, and history is replete with examples of where people are overconfident mm-hmm. or they underestimate the other side or they just make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the events leading up to what we know as the Battle of the Bulge, the events leading up to Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. I mean, even the events leading up to 9-11. Yeah. You know, we all heard how the you know intel community hadn't connected the dots. Well, that means there was information. Mm-hmm. It's just that nobody ever was able to put it together and have it make sense. And that, that you can call it fog of war. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's the same thing that has betrayed other people at other places at other times. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy here, I mean, to not only as I'm looking at Jamie's book, but to bring it up again, 25 hours to tragedy, when the Confederates stepped off at, you know, three or four o'clock, depending on how you're looking at it, if you think 24 to 25 hours into the future, I've taken people down to that area along the creek where Claiborne's men were bivouacked. Mm-hmm. That was their last night on earth, including Claiborne. And they went to sleep, you know, never anticipating the hellish story that was waiting for them up the road at Franklin. And that is, I think, the most important part of the Battle of Spring Hill story is I think people kind of joked about it and they made fun of it and they mm-hmm. minimized it. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a battle. It wasn't that important. Here's one. I got to admit, this just kind of pisses me off is when people say, well, you know, Schofield could have just moved his army to the west and, you know, advanced up the railroad yeah. bed or Carter's Creek Pike. Try Jamie, moving guns and wagons up a railroad track. Right. Jamie and I have talked about this, that if you make that argument, you clearly have never actually been here or, mm-hmm. or understand how an army moves. Mm-hmm. Schofield had one avenue to get north. And, and it's, the, it's the best road in the county, too. Well, and if you're going to go west, you're going to have to detour straight west five yeah. miles yeah. just to get to Carter's Creek Pike, which wasn't a good road. Okay. You couldn't go east. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's just nonsense. It's a misunderstanding of what was playing out. But mm-hmm. that next day, I, I truly, I wanted to understand the complexities of the battle, which is mm-hmm. actually not that terribly complex. But there were so many unanswered, there's so many gaps, you know, like with, to go back to Forrest. He had asked for a leave of absence about six weeks before this because he was just physically worn out. They had just finished you a know, campaign in Middle Tennessee. Right. Yeah. You know, newsflash, Forrest wasn't immortal, you know. <laughs> he was made of flesh and bone and he was worn out. And you can see in his actions here that he's not operating. Mm-hmm. Buford's not Tyree Bell. I mean, nobody seems to be operating with all their best faculties. Mm -hmm. Claiborne's not. Cheatham's not. Nobody is. And the Federal Army and Schofield and his subordinates just took advantage of the situation. And, you know, here we are. It's 100 and almost, what, 160 years? Almost 160 years afterwards. And we talk about this now every day and allow guests to, to see what happened here and how it rolled into Franklin. Last thing. November 30th, 1864. Here at Ripa Villa. When Hood comes from Oaklawn, which is back that way, about a mile and a half, somewhere between Oaklawn and here, mm-hmm. he begins to understand 
fully what had unfolded during the night. What's that like by the time he gets to Ripavilla and then what happens here? I mean, sometime around 2 in the morning, he gets a report from Stephen Dean Lee down in Columbia that says, at present, there is no enemy to my front. And then... My, and why? Because they're already gone. Because Cox had pulled out. Yeah, that's La- the last one. Last division. And then by the 4 or 5 in the morning, Confederate Army starts to wake up. By 5, Wagner's already crossing over the creeks to the north side of town, so he's gone. And then Hood shows up, and I'm going to do this at great risk because I don't know if it can be done or not. But I'm going to put my hands right here, and maybe we can put the video that you and I did mm. on the breakfast at Ripa Villa right, right there. I don't know. Breakfast. The, the breakfast meeting. Yeah. Uh, like they went to Cracker Barrel. Right. Sat over the old-timer sampler in the sunny side. Thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> Hood and Cheatham. Eating would be the last thing I'd want to do at that moment. I think we would all be sick to our stomachs. And that's the thing is people say, well, you know, John Bell Hood got angry that morning. Yeah, you would have been mad too. Yeah. Let's face it. Yeah, I, get, I can get angry at a lot less than what he encountered yeah. that morning. Yeah. So Hood tells Cheatham, put your men on the road. Don't stop till you find Schofield. In his mind, he's thinking this is the last possible opportunity he has. He has to catch Schofield between Spring Hill and the Brentwood Hills. Back up a second. You know what? Here's something else. He tells Cheatham to get his men on the road. Mm-hmm. Except who leads the advance to Franklin? It's not Cheatham. Stewart's Corps, because they arrive at Lewisburg. Which means that Hood, I think at some time, whether it's before, I mean, he, there are orders issued to Stewart, get on the road and get after the enemy. I think that movement begins. Because Forrest has already moved and Stewart has already moved. And Forrest splits his cavalry and he's moving up all three pikes, Lewisburg, Columbia, Carter Street Pike. Mm -hmm. Then the orders are to Stewart, get on the road, get after the Yankees. Mm Then, then Cheatham. Then Cheatham. And we know that John Brown, who wasn't at the meeting because he said he wasn't at the meeting, but he had heard that Hood was wrathy as a rattlesnake. And so he heard that certainly from Cheatham. Mm-hmm. And I suspect he probably was. Yeah. You know, did anything happen at Ripavilla? You really think anything happened here? I don't think they had a, a formal breakfast meeting where Susan Shares gave them biscuits and ham and right. gravy and fried chicken. I think they certainly had a discussion somewhere either at or near the house. Right. And then it's as simple as two soldiers coming together and a commanding officer looking at a subordinate and saying, go do your job. Last thing about spring, about that morning, and I wrap up this episode. There is a little, uh, it's a small detail, but it works its way out in December, early Mm -hmm. December when the Army's at Nashville. Hood had put in... um, He'd notified Richmond that he wanted Cheatham to be promoted. Because Cheatham's a major general, and he wanted him to be promoted to lieutenant general. Mm -hmm. He withdrew that. And then retracted the withdrawal. Because he said that he and Cheatham had had a discussion. And I am telling you, I bet my... I was going to say my right leg, but... Somebody already lost that one. Somebody already lost that one. (laughs) Um, I'll bet you $5 that the conversation was about mm-hmm. tap the table. Ah, tapping. tapping. That's always good for the soundboard. They talked about Spring Hill because he said that Cheatham had, you know, basically apologized for what had happened. I don't really know the details of it. Mm-hmm. Cheatham said there was never such a conversation, and that's that, that cannot be true mm-hmm. because Hood had no reason to just make up 
this story. I think there was a conversation, and why wouldn't there be? Because in the aftermath of Franklin, how could you not just sit down and say, what the heck Mm -hmm. happened? I knew, I know now what I didn't know then. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had done more, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it those are, that's another one of those cases where people just said, well, you know, Hood had to be lying. I was like, why well, would he be lying? I think that's the other thing too is that you talked about this kind of earlier is that there are the people that say that Hood should have never tried it, should have never attempted it. Really, if you look at the campaign, from the moment that he gets all of his supplies, he crosses over the Tennessee River, gets to Columbia. Everything had been moving textbook. Mm-hmm. It had been probably the most well-executed campaign that the army, and I will stake my reputation as a historian on this, the most well-executed campaign that the Army of Tennessee had been in in the last year. Because aside from withdrawing all around Atlanta, they had done nothing this successful and on the offense in a year. They, had... they get all the way to Columbia. Everything's going fine. They start the movement to Spring Hill. Everything's going fine. It's the first drop. It's the the first domino falls, and then everything starts to slow down. And that well-oiled machine that had worked so well falls apart at the last possible second. Right. And at the moment that it absolutely has to work perfectly, the wheels come off the cart. So I think in conclusion, we sometimes look at the Battle of Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin as if they're separate events. Mm-hmm. Over time, I've come to see that there it's really a 24 to 36 hour period that you have to understand as a whole. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit like looking at the first and the second day at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. The second day doesn't happen the way that it does without the first day. Or you could look at day two and day three, mm-hmm. probably a better example. Yeah. Day three's you know, big attack is all as a result of day two. But this is all bound together. And you have to come to Spring Hill. You have to come to the battlefield. You have to visit Ripa Villa. I think to really understand Carter House, mm-hmm. Carnton, the Battle of Franklin. And we're just thrilled to death to be here mm-hmm. managing not only this site, but, but really being at the forefront of interpreting a story that really has both Spring Hill and Franklin have emerged from the ashes and the best way to, over the last decade or two. Best way to do that is to take the campaign tour. Do all three in the same day. Campaign tour. We offer battlefield tours at both places. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with, I think, the most exhaustive studies mm-hmm. of the campaign. I don't know about Jamie, but I, um, I can say I challenge anyone to write something that has more detail that explains the story better because I think that the old myths and legends. Um, did a disservice to this mm-hmm. and I think that the, the modern era of interpretation really allows visitors a much better understanding of what happened here mm-hmm. last thoughts professor I don't know but apparently we have to come up with a question to what's the question people. I don't question know. for guests to comment on I don't know Maybe. who's responsible that's too easy why not okay fine who's responsible who is responsible or what do you, who's responsible or if you don't like that question, what um, is the most interesting uh, part of this story yeah. to you? Yeah. I'd Comment be away. to see how many people talk about Schofield. And if you say anything about Hood being on Laudanum, you're likely to get some sort of um, pushback on that. Very likely. All right. Anything else? That's it. Thanks for watching.